0: Old Pilot's Plane Tales, a four-star conversation. I recently talked to Sir Richard Johns, retired Royal Air Force Chief of the Air Staff and Air Chief Marshal of four-star rank, about his book Bolts from the Blue. After our discussion, which features on the podcast Plane Talking UK, I was able to move the conversation on to his interest in aviation history, a subject that fascinates us both. I hope that you'll find this as interesting as I did. So, uh, moving on to uh, aviation history, yeah. one of my great loves. Um, what aspects of uh, history have intrigued you, and what do you sort of uh, like in- in delving into?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that the, the history of the formation of the Royal Air Force is absolutely fascinating. Uh, equally fascinating is the story of its survival uh, after the First World War, when, for reasons I can well understand, uh, predatory uh, the admiralty and war office wanted it back. They wanted the Royal Naval Air Service, the Royal Flying Corps, back. Um, you know, the, the First World War ended far more sooner than anyone expected, as you probably know. I mean, form first of April, war ended in November. Um, so I, I fa- I've always found that very interesting. And how uh, Trenchard dug the foundations of the Royal Air Force so strongly when he became CS by Cramwell officers, Halton apprentices, uh, Andover Staff College. And he laid those foundations very deliberately, at some expense to the front line, in the sense that if you look at what the Royal Air Force was flying uh, in India and Iraq and places like that in the early 30s, I mean, the airplanes they were flying weren't all that much different from what they'd been flying in the First World War. Um, But of course, in those days, they could go and do the job uh, where they were flying, one, because the weather was by and large better, and two, um, because there wasn't any problem of fighting for aerial superiority or tactical a- aerial superiority, and I don't know enough about it. I, I, it's one of those things I ought to read a lot more about. As although I know enough about it to get by, is what the air force was actually doing in detail. I've heard some very nice stories, anecdotal type stories, but I'd like to look at that a, a, a wee bit um, more, 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 di- more deeply. Um, the irony of is if, uh, of the thirties. In my view, is that Trenchard's addiction to the doctrine of the offensive and bombers was accepted by the politicians. You know, they, they accepted this. So, what then happened, of course, as as one got uh, as uh, as the country recognised the emerging threat of, of Germany and the very rapid expansion of the Luftwaffe with this uh, very large bombing force being brought into service, that all of a sudden, the um, procurement emphasis switched from bombers to fighters. And I mean, you know, it's it, absolutely amazing the way that happened. So we went to war in 1939 with you know, a, 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 a growing fighter force with very, two very good airplanes, you know, obviously the Spitfire and the Hurricane, but with a bomber force that just wasn't up to the job.
0: Oh, the losses in the first part uh, no. of the war were dreadful, weren't they? They, they were
1: absolutely dreadful because the, you know, the, the, aer- the aeroplanes, I mean, e- even the most advanced at that time, what are we talking about, the Hamden and the Blenheim, uh, they were daylight only. They were totally inadequately equipped to defend themselves against you know, 109s and contemporary type fighters at that stage. Nav-aids, what nav-aids do they have? Were they any good at navigation? No, they weren't because they actually hadn't trained very hard at navigation. So you know, in the early days of the war, uh, it, it, I always found it very ironic that Trenchard's doctrine on the offensive was completely overturned, One by his addiction to it and the way he used to spell out the, um, the need for a strong bomber force, led actually to the, to the introduction of this hugely efficient uh, air defence force. And uh, as I've said in there, I, in my sort of attitudes and prejudices bit, I think that if the Navy and the Army had had their way back in the the early 20s, and we have gone back, neither individually nor together would they have ever constructed the air defence system in the air and on the ground, most importantly, that actually withstood the onslaught of the Luftwaffe in 1940. Quite convinced of that. I just don't think they'd ever have done that.
0: So we can thank Trenchard for not only maintaining the Royal Air Force as a unique unit, but also really for giving us that edge during the initial part of the war, where we had
1: to push back the German forces. Yes. Um, well, not quite the way that he saw it happening, but the, but it did happen, um, uh, and so on. And well, you know, well, if you want to talk about the bomber offensive, but um, very very interesting. I and mean, That's another thing which does interest me quite considerably.
0: Brilliant. Examining that part of the war, then, um, the bomber force became uh, a really um, huge part of taking the war to Germany. Yes. Um, there are some very controversial uh, targets that were chosen during the war, which, with a modern eye, the general public often look at and think that was the wrong thing to do. But
1: you see a different view. Yeah. I, I think that um, the destruction of, of, of German cities. Uh, Was 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 inevitable, uh, in the sense that this was total war, and people these days, I think, uh, more recent generations, don't quite understand that not only was that total war was a war of national survival. And after the defeats of the first couple of years of the war, I mean, the army had been defeated in Norway, uh, France. Crete. Uh, it was a long list, litany, of, of very serious defeats. The navy um, with, at that stage, not a lot, well a significant, but not a lot of support from coastal command were fighting this ferocious struggle um, in the Atlantic in, in 41, as it was getting tougher and tougher, and indeed in the Mediterranean. So when we were alone, And the only way that we had of hitting back at Germany was through bomber command. And although their raids were, at that stage, were largely ineffectual, I think there were two consequences. The first was that Germany was not going to be absolved from its aggression. There was a price to pay for aggression. That was the first thing. And even more importantly, strategically, in my view, These operations were being watched very closely by the Soviet Union and the Americans. And they knew that we're up for the fight. We weren't just going to cave in. And I think that in in terms of what was to happen with uh, Pearl Harbor, Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union and so on, they knew that we were going to be there with them and so on. And I think that strategically, obviously, was very important. But as the Bomber Command Offensive began to um, expand, and particularly, of course, with the in- introduction of the big bombers in '42, I'm talking specifically about the Lancaster and the Halifax, um, and new marking techniques and so on and so forth, the ability of the command to inflict severe damage on Germany uh, expanded and expanded. And, of course, then with the Americans joining in, uh, with the 8th US, 8th Army Air Force, and so on, it became around a clock the operation. And attacking cities was necessary from two viewpoints, well, from two points of view. The first one, of course, was to attack German industry and to slow down their rate of war production. And the second was, of course, that Germany's control of uh, Europe, its war on the Eastern Front, was significantly dependent on rail transport. And these places that we were tra- attacking weren't only centres of industry, they were also very important transport nodes to get you know, bits of U-boat out for assembly and so on and so forth, ammunition, to the, particularly to the Eastern Front. So all this was, 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 a, was a very wide-ranging campaign that opened up a second front long before D-Day, and I think that's, you know, that strategically was hugely important. And then when you get on to the more controversial issues, and of course probably the most controversial was Dresden, um, I think you've got to put it into context. Uh, at Dresden was, I can't remember the precise dates, but it was around about February 13th, 14th, 1945. Uh, I've got a book over there. Uh, I've got books all over the place. But uh, Anthony Beaver, in his book on the Second World War, says Dresden was a city too far. Max Hastings is a huge um, critique. He he, he just please, we just went on smashing German cities almost just for the sheer hell of it. Well, not true. Uh, Unlike them, I was living in the country at the time. I was living in Deal, uh, or just outside Deal, Warmer. And I can remember, as a young boy, V1s uh, coming over, and I knew full well as a boy, if you heard the noise, you were okay. If you didn't hear the noise, it wasn't okay. And the best thing was to get down. And I can remember sheltering under the kitchen. We didn't have a bomb shelter where we lived, uh, getting under the kitchen table where, as these things were duk 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 over their way towards London. Um, because my father, at that stage, had come back from sea and was serving in the Royal Marines barracks at Deals before he joined 31 in, Thirty One Infantry Battalion, Royal Marines uh, oh, 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 over in, in Europe. So I can remember that, and people forget that from, nine, from about, eight, you know, I forget when it was, June 44, right through to March 45, we were under attack from, first of all, V-1s. Over 10,000 were launched. Well, of only, what, yes, four, a, a vast yeah, number. Yeah, you know, vast numbers. And <coughs> even more dangerous and worrying were V-2s. Now, they, we were still under attack from those weapons when Dres- the Dresden raid was authorised. But why was it authorised? The war was not won. Uh, Then we had suffered the setback of Arnhem. The Germans had launched a huge offensive, the Ardennes Offensive, which took over a month to halt uh, and to drive back. We had not crossed the Rhine. Ferocious fighting on the Eastern Front. Yalta Conference. Churchill goes to the Yalta Conference and Stalin says, what can you do to help? We'll be very grateful, I suppose if that's the way he put it, if you could um, attack the transport nodes, Chemnitz, Leipzig and Dresden, to do two things. One, to stem the flow of reinforcements from the West to the East, and secondly, to cause confusion from the thousands fleeing now from the advance of of the Red Army. And Churchill agreed at the conference. Now, it, it is debatable whether or not Dresden was mentioned as a specific target, although the official interpreter at the time says it was, but it wasn't in the formal record of the meeting. And that decision was then went down to the air headquarters, uh, the uh, Supreme Allied uh, Headquarters, and it was agreed that Dresden would be attacked. Harris, believe it or not, challenged that decision. Why did he challenge it? It wasn't because he he was going soft and uh, bombing German cities no longer was on his agenda. It was simply the distance from the UK to Dresden. And he had recalled the difficult, not the difficulties, the dangers of long-range penetration into Germany when um, we attacked Nuremberg the year before and lost over 90 bombers. In, in one raid. Oh, yeah, something. Over 500 aircrew. And that was the deepest penetration bomber command I think had done at that time. And he thought, wow, and they asked me now to go to Dresden, which is just as far, if not further. Hmm. And remember then that by then, Messerschmitt 262s were coming into service, Schnorkel U boats were at sea. And so the idea that the war was soon going to be over was hang on a minute, it's not going to be over. We thought it was going to be over before Christmas. Well, what's happening now? New technology. Are they going to challenge our superiority in the air and at sea? Don't know. Well, there was, there was uncertainty. Uh, but Harris was told, no, you get on and do it. And, of course, again, another irony was, of the whole operation was, the Americans were due to attack first in daylight. It was going to be, the first raid was going to be a daylight raid, escorted, of course, by Mustangs. And then Bomber Command was going to do the follow-up raid at night. The daylight ray was cancelled because of weather. Bomber command went in first at night. Bomber command got got all the the, the, the publicity, the bad publicity, that came out of what was looked upon as unnecessary and unwanted destruction. Although Dresden did make its own input to the German uh, arms industry and so on. And of course, as soon as that happened, well, not as soon as it happened, as soon as the destruction, the dreadful destruction of this lovely old city, and, and, and you know, which was, was a beautiful place and so on, became evident. Everyone backed off. Not me, chief. I had nothing to do with it. Hmm. And, of course, Harris took the full blame publicly for it. And his reputation, of course, uh, suffered as a consequence.
0: It's been a long time for the job of the Bomber Command during the war to be fully recognised. Yes. Uh, Have you attended uh, any of the opening of the recent uh, memorial? Oh yes, I
1: I was at the opening of the Bomber Command Memorial, um, just opposite the RAF Club up near Hyde Park, yes. Long, long overdue.
0: Absolutely, and a touching moment, I'm sure.
1: It was, it was, um, what I do remember about it was a boy hot day. You, you
0: mentioned Coastal Command, very much a forgotten force, but one that did a fantastic job, and I bring it up particularly... Not in there. No, not in there. <laughs> but I bring it up particularly because my father flew Sunderlands for the Royal Australian oh, you, Air Force out of Plymouth during the war, and his job was uh, yeah. convoy protection. But they did a remarkable job in helping to stem that dreadful uh, oh, yes. attack of the U-boats. Well,
1: I mean, the, the it, it was... The, the, the Atlantic campaign um, was a genuine joint endeavour, Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, Coastal Command. In the very early days before the war, I, I believe I'm right in saying that the Navy felt that they could deal with it. Um, and of course, there weren't all that many U-boats around the beginning of the war, but the German production of U-boats accelerated very, very quickly. And, and by 1942, I can't remember the tonnage of shipping we were losing. But, I mean, it, it was a phenomenal amount of, of shipping was going down. And that shipping, of course, was absolutely vital, not just to feed the nation, but also to bring all the stuff across that was going to be needed for the invasion of Europe. And it wasn't until the end of forty-two, beginning of forty-three, that we started to get the upper hand against the U-boats, you know, and uh, uh, Ultra and all sorts of other things you know, were playing their part in this. But by the end of the war, the the Royal Air Force Coastal Command had sunk something like 189 uh, U-boats, destroyed, I forget what the figure was, 400-odd surface ships uh, using bow fighters. uh, And and I think Mosquitoes also uh, were deployed into uh, Coastal Command at the end of the war, I'm not sure about that. But certainly bow fighters in the anti-shipping role. And then Sunderlands and uh, Catalinas and goodness knows what else uh, in the anti-U-boat war. Five thousand Coastal Command aircrew were killed during the war. One forgets that. Uh, they also won a number of Victoria Crosses as well during the war. Yeah, but they, they very rarely feature. No, I mean I mean the sheer, I mean I have met Coastal Command aircrew who never saw a U-boat. You know, who flew for two three years mm. and never saw one. Then you meet others, and I met uh, both the two Victoria surviving Victoria Cross holders, both of whom are Coastal Command aircrew. Uh, at the 80th birthday of the Royal Air Force, which I, which I had to host. And they were both Coastal Command men. Brilliant.
0: Any other aspects you'd like to bring up before we uh, bring this to a
1: close? I, I think, you know, when I look back on it, I mean, pe- people ask me, you know, well, you know, w- w- would you do it again? Of course I would. I mean, in my career, there were moments of, of great sadness. You know, I saw you know, too many friends killed in flying accidents. Um, but when i think back on it the fun of the job the professionalism of the job the flying these amazing airplanes which i was so lucky to fly uh, and to keep flying until i left the le- left the service was was a great joy a great jo- delight and it was a great privilege to have done all of this but what i've tried to do in, in that book i mean an autobiography is by definition egocentric and of course that book is egocentric but i've tried to widen the scope of it To give some impression of an Air Force changing from the one that I joined in 57, which was over 200,000 strong with 11 commands worldwide to one that I left in 2000 that was 53,000 strong with two commands. And the change of the Air Force over this time but one I like to think never lost its spirit, its ethos, its enthusiasm uh, and its professional efficiency. And that's what I've tried to do um, in that book. So thank you very much for listening to me so patiently and indeed for your time.
0: Thank you very much so much. If you
1: enjoy Plane
0: Tales, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.